a couple of weeks ago, um, when I was on vacation, I had a day from morning till late at night when I was left all alone and unattended. Jennifer and Sarah were doing their annual pilgrimage to the Canadian National Exhibition in Toronto. Emily was at work and had a work function in the evening. And I had from eight o'clock in the morning till one o'clock the following morning, having the house and life to myself, unattended, unsupervised. I was reflecting that day on my childhood and specifically on a toy that I had when I was a child. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but there's like one toy that stands out like that was the toy of childhood. Like there might have been a few other things, but there was that one toy that was like the to toy of all of childhood. And so for me, that was an early 1970s G.I. Joe Adventure Team helicopter. I don't know how I even got it because I know it came from the Sears catalog. I don't know how my parents could afford to buy it, but they did, and I loved it. And two years after going off to do school, my mom was cleaning out, thought it was either not worth anything or broken, and she either gave it away or threw it out, or it's gone. It's gone. So I was thinking about that, and because I was unsupervised, I thought, I wonder if I can find a copy of it for sale. So two minutes in, can you believe it? God is good. <laughs> two minutes in, I found it. And I was just, I mean, look at it. I found it. This is the actual picture. I'm, I'm looking at it there and I'm, I'm seeing it, you see? And I'm seeing this bold ad vintage 1971 G.I. Joe helicopter box and original instructions. $39 US was the highest bid. I thought, if I bid, Jen's going to be so mad. <laughs> because I have so much junk. She calls it junk. She's going to be mad. So I'm just going to look around for a minute and then I accidentally bid $40 US. It was an accident. And I thought, oh no, how do I explain? 53.64 Canadian. And I thought, you know what? For something this valuable, that's a really good price. And plus, she's not the boss of me. So uh, if I win the bid, I'm buying it. And so for two hours, alone and unsupervised, I I just reveled in, in, in what I just found. And then I looked at the email closely. And I noticed there was no comma between the word helicopter and box. Mm. It didn't say G.I. Joe helicopter, comma, box, and original. It said G.I. Joe helicopter, box. <laughs> and original instructions. There was no helicopter. <laughs> well, now I'm in trouble because I have to explain to Jen how I bid 53.64 on an empty box. 
and I'm scrambling, and it took me 14 hours to correct my sin, carrying the weight of my secret, not daring to let anybody know that out there in cyberspace was my registered bid on an empty box. The box was beautifully preserved. No rips, no scratches, no wear. The graphics were perfect. The instructional manual was included, but the real value, the helicopter, was missing. Well, as I reflected on that scary two days, and as I reflected on this series, I thought, yes, yeah, this experience that I had is similar to much of North American Christianity, to many North American Christians, to many North American churches. We have preserved this beautiful facade that promises everything that the box says is included inside. And we even have an original copy of the instructions that we have guarded and protected very carefully. But when the lid is open and we look inside, it's empty. It's empty. The real value is often missing. What the box was meant to contain, what the instructions were intended to instruct, it's not there. The vital piece, the most important piece, is gone. Well, what I would suggest is missing is a clear understanding and a clear engagement of the mission of the kingdom of God in the daily lives of those of us who are the followers of Jesus. That mission is making disciples, making disciples through the saving power of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, there is good news. There are many followers of Jesus. There are many churches, and I'd like to believe that we're among them who are realizing when we honestly reflect that the mission of the kingdom of God needs to be rediscovered and are making the difficult decisions. And you wouldn't think that reengaging the mission of making disciples would be a difficult process and decision to make, but it is. It's a difficult decision, and it takes sacrifices because it goes against much of what we have made the church to be. And so there's often a great price in engaging the mission. And so today, we're beginning our fall series, Living the Mission. And our theme is very simple. If we're going to live the mission We must first understand the mission. We must understand it. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to consider what Jesus declared his mission to be in Luke chapter 4, 18 to 19, when he stood in the synagogue and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to do these things. We're going to look at what the mission of Jesus is, and then we're going to look at how he lived that out, how he lived out the mission by looking at some examples through the rest of the Gospel of Luke. Now, I think it's important for us to understand today that the New Testament 
is not the point where God decided to establish the mission. That's not where it started. We see in the Old Testament from the moment of the fall of man, God's mission to save his creation immediately enacted. In fact, I'll take it a step further. The Bible tells us in Ephesians, 1 Peter, the book of Revelation, that Jesus, the Lamb of God, was chosen even before the creation of the earth, even before the creation of mankind, humankind, peoplekind, whatever you call it, to be the Savior of humanity. Even before God created us, His plan, His mission was already created. God's mission to save His creation was established before He even created humanity. Now today, what I want us to to begin with is the passage in the Old Testament. And I believe that Jeremiah chapter 29 gives us an exceptional insight into how the people of God have always been expected to live out the mission, even in the midst of deteriorating and challenging times. So let's look at this scripture together. And it's, a, it's two screens, so it's a little longer than I normally read, but I think it's important today. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so they too may have their sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Recognize that verse? That's the one we always take out of context. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Let's start with the context. When you read the Old Testament, you see that God is creating a people who will honor his name in a way that not only affects their lives, but will impact, God says from the very beginning, the nations around you. And so we see God's promise to Abraham that through him, not only would he create a nation, but that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then we see Abraham's descendants in slavery in Egypt. We see the wilderness exodus leading to uh, what they refer to as the promised land that was given to them by God as the place where now this group of people will establish themselves. And they were given them this land with a set of conditions. They were to meditate on the law of God. They were to live their lives in obedience to the law of God, faithful to God, not be influenced by the idolatry of the surrounding nations. If they did this, in turn, God would be with them. He'd protect them. He'd bless them. They would be the people of God, and they would positively impact the nations around them for God. But there's a problem. 
Both the leadership of Israel, the elders, the prophets, the priests, and the people themselves are sinning continuously. They refuse to listen to the warning of the prophets of God. In fact, they're mocking the prophets of God. And they broke the covenant. Now, the result of that is God made good on his ultimatum. If they refuse to be obedient and faithful, he said, I'm going to scatter you through the nations. You're going to be exiled. So in 597 BC, 3,000 Jews, elders, priests, prophets of Israel were sent to Babylon. They're sent 100 kilometers east of Israel to a place that we know today as Iraq. They went from living in the promised land to living in this strange and foreign land. They're unhappy. They're homesick. They want more than anything for their present reality to end. They want God to put things back the way they were. And so there's prophets that are in exile, and there's prophets back home in Jerusalem where there are still Jews living, and they're prophesying that God is going to end the exile within two years. Even though God said 70 years, they're telling them, God's changed his mind. There's going to be an early release. And that they should resist the Babylonians. And they should fight for what you want. And you should form a rebellion so that within two years, you can go back home. Now, this message from the prophets is exactly what the people want to hear. Times are bad. But God is going to put it back the way it was. And it's going to happen in two years. But the problem is, what they're saying is not what God said. So then we see the instructions. Jeremiah is a true prophet of God. He's living in Jerusalem at the time of this passage. And he's witnessing firsthand what other false prophets in Jerusalem are saying. But he's also hearing from Babylon what the false prophets are saying there. And so word gets back to him, and, and he's upset, and he's prompted by God to write a letter. And so he can't travel to Babylon, so he wrote this letter to be carried to Babylon to address the situation, to communicate God's words to the exiles there. Now, in Jeremiah chapter 29, we have the first recorded letter in the Bible. In fact, most of chapter 29 is the contents of Jeremiah's letter. And he reminded them, first of all, that it was God who carried them into exile. It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. God sent them into exile, and it was because it was punishment for their blatant sins and rejection of God. And so he told them in the letter, don't be deceived by these false prophets. Don't be deceived by the diviners among you. Their words are lies. Their words are not from the Lord. That God's intention was not their quick release. In fact, God's intention is focused instead on how they will live while they are in exile and the impact that it will have on them, but also the impact that it will have on the Babylonians. And then he outlined four instructions from God framing how they should spend their time in this foreign context in order to make the most of this terrible situation. The first thing he said was build houses and plant gardens. 
Now, the houses that God is referencing here are family homes. So he's saying, build yourself a family home. The gardens are what are known as kitchen gardens. They're not farms, but they're, you know, the express purpose of a kitchen garden is to grow food for your family to eat out around the home that you've built. And so shelter and food are the foundation of survival. And so what God is saying to these Jews in this foreign dark land is this, settle in, establish a home, live normal lives around, among these strangers. Unpack your suitcase. You're going to be here for a while. The second thing God says is get married and have children. God's intention, once again, is life as usual. To grow as families, even though they're living amongst pagans and strangers. And there's a challenge here because the Jews had many specific cultural and religious practices that they followed when it came to arranging, uh, culturally arranging marriages, and now they're in a foreign land and they can't enact all of that, and, and they don't have the authority to do it, they don't have the resources to do it, and so they're going to need to modify that whole process somehow, and so God is saying, don't be afraid to, to work with your circumstances. Don't be afraid to make some modifications. He's not suggesting they start intermarrying. That's not what it's being said here. But he's saying, you know, work with what you have and grow and carry on in your family. The third thing he said is pray for peace and prosperity. The focus of this, this prayer is not themselves. He didn't say pray for yourself. He said, pray for peace and prosperity because the focus of their prayers is to be for the city they are living in. And the word prayer here means a request for, salva for salvation. What God is saying to them is this, don't resent the pagans around you. Don't reject the people who believe and live different than you. Pray for them. See them as people who are candidates to become the people of God just as you are the people of God. Pray for the prosperity of your city. Want your city to prosper because guess what God said? If the city you live in prospers, then you will prosper. There's a benefit to you for the place that you live to prosper. God is saying this is not a time to revolt against your context. This is a time to trust God that he will work in the midst of the darkness if you're faithful to do what he's asking you to do. They have the potential to reap the blessing of God even while they're in the midst of darkness and sinfulness of a foreign land filled with foreign values. So he says, pray for peace and prosperity. And finally, Reject spiritual ignorance. There are people around you who hold spiritual offices, who have spiritual authority, who are saying the things that you want to hear. They're trying to rally you. They're convincing you of certain things. They're attempting to bring you to a certain type of action and response. And God said, don't listen to them. Even though they're in positions of authority and even though they are supposedly spiritual people, don't listen to them. Don't let you deceive them because they claim to speak in my name, but what they're saying, those are not my words. That's not what I want. I didn't send them. I didn't tell them 
to say that. I didn't give them that act to follow. Those were the instructions. And then the letter ends with hope. God's words to the exiles include a promise for the future. Because hope is not in changing where we're at, but believing that the day will come when things will be better. That's, that's hope. And so the only way for them to know true hope is to trust in God in the midst of these terrible circumstances. Believing that what God is promising for the future will come to pass even though the present reality says something different. God said he would bring them back when the time was right. God is saying there is an end date to this. In fact, the word, the number 70 in Scripture is a symbol of completion. And God is saying, I'm going to bring you back when this is complete. God says, I have a plan. I have a plan. You may not understand it. You may not know what it is. You may not agree with it. You may not like it. But I have a plan. And God says, and by the way, it's a good plan. It's a good plan. Even though it's a difficult plan, it's not meant to destroy you, even though it's going to be hard for you. It's going to be difficult for you. In fact, in the end, it's meant to prosper you, to add to you. At the end of the day, when I'm done doing what I'm going to do, you're not going to be lacking anything. God is saying there's going to be a time in the future when you're going to leave this foreign place of captivity and you're going to go home. And when that time comes, you're going to call on me, and I'm going to answer. You're going to pray, and I'm going to hear you. You're going to seek me, and you're going to find me. What God is saying to them is simply this. Your current reality is not your destiny. Your current reality is not your destiny. If you stay focused on me, if you trust me, if you live as I've asked you to live through this very difficult time, there is a better day awaiting you. So, or should I say, so what? Well, only two observations that I'd like to draw from this text today in terms of living the mission that God has called us to. The first is dark days, bright hope. Folks, there's no question that we are living in a time when we are witnessing a rapid decline of Christian influence in our nation. I mean, you have to be living under a rock to not see that. Now, while Canada was never officially a Christian nation. People say, oh, Canada's no longer a Christian nation. Canada was never officially a Christian nation. Canada, though, has operated for most of its existence with an unofficial understanding that Christian morals, Christian views, Christian influence, Christian practices would shape how we've lived, we would live as a nation. So we were never. The U.S. was established as a Christian nation under God. We were not. But there was an unwritten understanding that we would govern this and live in this country and our practices would be shaped as if we were following um, Scripture and the things of God. Now, when I was growing up 100 years ago, 
when G.I. Joe helicopter was the hot item. I experienced this firsthand. I wasn't going to a Christian school, but from kindergarten to many grades up, we started every day with the Lord's Prayer. Every council meeting, every public meeting started with the Lord's Prayer. I remember in grade two, our teacher had this awesome children's Bible, and she would read us a Bible story every day. To my knowledge, she wasn't a believer. It wasn't a Christian school. She just read us stories from the Bible. And so, you know, Christian morals were emphasized. For many years, Christians in Canada enjoyed significant influence with government and society as a whole. If we look at our history post-World War II, things began to shift. Church attendance began to drop. And a slow erosion of Christian influence began to happen over time, taking us to where we are today. Many Christian denominations began leaning more towards what we would call a liberal theology, diminishing the content of the gospel message to the point that today there are some Christian denominations and churches that have atheists as their ministers. We read that in the paper in our area. That's where we've shifted. Add into that increased immigration with diverse religious belief systems, and we find ourselves today with very little influence as Christians in our country. That's the reality of how Canada has changed. And so many Christians find themselves dazed And disappointed when they reflect on things like our abortion practices, our marriage laws, drug legalization, perceived discrimination in things as recent as, you know, summer student summer grants and and law schools that are Christian universities not being able to train lawyers to practice within law societies. When we look at what government is spending our tax dollars on, things that go against what we believe to be good things. And to be honest, sometimes it's almost too much to process. And we fear how bad it might just get. How bad is it going to be? Well, when I read the Bible, I clearly see that a day is coming when Jesus is going to return. I believe that. And fully usher in God's kingdom. And as followers of Jesus, we live in an excited anticipation for that day. We're living for that day. But we also see as we read scriptures that are in many places and always associated with his return, that things are going to deteriorate even more significantly before he comes back. Moral decline, spiritual decline. And so there's no indication in Scripture that there's going to be this dramatic turnaround in culture. It's not there. In fact, the opposite is there. Godliness, godlessness is going to advance to the point where God says, enough is enough. And Jesus comes back. Folks, the truth is, things are going to be bad. Things are going to be bad spiritually and morally. They're going to get worse. I just want to encourage you this morning. (laughs) It's like you've heard me quote a pastor friend of mine. He always used to say, cheer up, it's going to get worse. (laughs) Things are going to be bad. They're going to get worse. We're going to know what real persecution means. I believe that. We're going to lose rights. We're going to continue to lose influence. We're going to continue to lose opportunities. 
And as difficult as some of these things we have witnessed to date have been, I believe we haven't seen anything yet. This thing is not going to get better. It's going to get much worse. And despite the decline, we need to be reminded that our hope is not in a political system. Our hope is not in a political system. Our hope is not in political leaders. Our hope is not in legislating morality. Our hope is not in what judges get appointed. Our hope is only in Jesus Christ. That's our hope. That's our only hope. And so in the midst of our despair, in the midst of our hopelessness, in the midst of our decay, in the midst of, of, of reading the book of Revelation, which is apocalyptic literature, which basically the theme of apocalyptic literature is, this is how bad it is, but there's hope because, you know, the Lamb appears. In the midst of our despair, in the midst of our hopelessness, in the midst of the decay, a Lamb appears. One who's worthy. There will be a time in the future when this world and this foreign place of captivity where the Bible says we are aliens and foreigners and that's how it feels like will be redeemed and transformed by the return of Jesus. But the truth is our current reality is not our destiny. If we stay focused on Jesus if we trust Jesus, if we live as Jesus has asked us to live, we'll not only get through this difficult time, but this is the important part. We're not just going to get through it, but we're going to make an impact on those around us during what is one of the darkest times in our Canadian history from a moral and spiritual perspective. Despite how bad things get, the church of Jesus Christ, the people of Jesus Christ, will make a positive impact in the midst of it. So in the meantime, followers of Jesus are called to be salt in the midst of the decay. We're called to be light in the midst of the darkness. How? By living as Jesus lived and loving as Jesus loved. Living the mission. Secondly, conflicting messages. Now, I have a disclaimer. Some of you may not agree with what I'm about to say. And I want you to know that I respect that and that we can disagree and still be friends. Is that okay? In fact, every sermon I preach, I hope you go home, you think about what I said, and you decide if what I preached was truth or not. That you don't just take it because I said it. So some of you may, maybe, maybe you won't. Maybe all of you will. I don't know. But I want you to know that I respect that. And if we disagree, we can still be friends. No problem. I'll still accept your Christmas presents. No problem. <laughs> okay? It's okay. First and foremost, as an individual, I have to come to terms with what I believe God is asking of me as a follower of Jesus. Why? Well, because someday I'm going to have to give an account of my life for how I've lived my life. I don't have to, you have to give account of yours, I have to give account of mine. But secondly, because I'm a pastor, I'm a teacher, I also have to give an account 
for my ministry. And the Bible says, which is my least favorite verse, that those of you who are teachers will be judged more severely. Oh, I don't really like that verse. Because why? Because we recognize that in this position, we have influence over other people and we can lead people astray. And so because of that, God holds us accountable to that. So it's important that not only do I come to grips with what God is asking of me, but I really do understand what it's important for me to faithfully lead this congregation in a way that God would have us go as as his community. And so I, I believe the most significant issue in terms of Christians and a deteriorating culture is how we respond to what we see going on around us. We have to respond, but how we respond is critically important. And so often I believe we're like the Jewish exiles. We, we don't like where we find ourselves. I mean, who, who would have signed up for this? We don't like where we find ourselves. In fact, we, we miss what used to be. We want more than anything to go back to the way it was. Of course we do. So sometimes we resist our environment. We seek to hear the voices of those who are saying things that we want to hear. And so like the day of Jeremiah, there are many voices who are presenting to those of us who are followers of Jesus varying options and expectations of how we as believers and how we as a church should be responding into the midst of what we're seeing. And and I face it maybe because of my position quite frequently. Now, many people gravitate to those who are saying that we need to take back our country. We need to take back our country for God, they say. We need to, we need to engage in, in politics. We need to fight the government. We need to rebel against the direction that society is going. There are many people who are promoting that as that is the course of action that we as the church and as believers of Jesus should be taking. And so as a result, groups are being formed and movements are being started to push back against the tide of a sinful culture. And the result of that, I believe, is that many church and believers are engaged in the political and moral fight to regain the influence we once had. Now, what I'm concerned about is that the more the church and believers become involved in fighting against the tide of culture, the more the church gets caught up in political things, the more distracted we become. And the emphasis on fulfilling the mission is getting lost. I think as a church, we need to be reminded what we are here to do. And we are here to live the mission. So as I consider my response to society in light of the word of God, I believe that I'm first and foremost called to live the mission of the kingdom of God, to make disciples as people come to saving faith in Jesus. That as a follower of Jesus is my number one responsibility. Jesus made it very clear. Luke, more than any other author, goes to great lengths to establish the political environment. Do you ever notice that? That Jesus is born into. Who's the governor? Who's the leader? Who's the king? Who's this? Who's Caesar? Who are, who are all these people? He creates a picture for us of what this intense spiritual and climate was in Israel at the time that the Messiah arrived. Yet, and this is important, never once does Jesus engage Roman politics or fight for the rights of God's people. Never once is it recorded, as much as Luke gives us the information. Instead, what do we read? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. When you get hit on one cheek, turn the other cheek. When they make you walk a mile, 
Walk an extra mile. When they make you give, you give more than they asked. Wow. He's really giving it to the Romans, isn't he? I believe what God would have us do in response to the downward spiral of society and the rapid loss of rights of Christians is to intentionally live the mission of Jesus like we have never lived it before. That is our response. Buy homes among them. This is not the day for gated Christian communities or Christian trailer parks or... or Christian campgrounds and, and apartment buildings where we, we, we shut the pagans out. God said, buy homes among them. Work among them. It's not the day to only get your hair cut by a Christian hairdresser or your car fixed by a Christian mechanic or your house built by a Christian carpenter. God says, live among them. Live your life and pray for them. And love them like you've never loved them before. And be willing to adjust your methods without compromising your message. Trust that God is working in the darkness through us if we're willing to be the followers of Jesus we're called to be. I'm a believer that my street should be different because I live on it. And I... Took some time to reflect on that today. I don't know what my neighbors would say, but I think my street is different because I live on it. The way I take care of my property reflects on my street. You don't have to wade through grass up to your hips to get into my house. My neighbors don't hate me because the dandelions are blowing on their lawns. I help them when I can. If it's a heavy snow day and my old snowblower is still chugging, I'll do what I can to get them out. And they reciprocate. And it's a good relationship. Your street should be different because you live on it. There are people that I know on my street that have lived there since the street was built that don't know anybody on our street. We know lots of them. Your street should be different because you live there. Your workplace should be different because you work there. When people walk into that workplace and if they are asked to evaluate the contribution you make, it should be more than performing the act that you were paid to do, but they should say, they should be able to comment on your integrity. Do you show up on time? Do you leave on time? Do you steal paper clips? Do you tell bad jokes? Do you, do you gossip in the office? Are you disrespectful to the boss behind their back? How you function in that workplace should change the workplace for the better. Live among them. Your school should be different because you're there. Let me tell you as a parent who had kids who've gone through some very deep, dark valleys that I, many times I've prayed and said, God, there must be one kid who sits in somebody's church on Sunday morning who shows up at a high school and decides that today I'm going to be the kid that makes a difference in that kid's life. Is there just one God? I mean, come on, our youth groups have 40, 50, 100 kids in them. Is there not someone in a high school of 1,300 people? Seriously, your school should be different because you're in it. I know high school's tough. 
I was bullied. I know what it feels like. I know how hard it can be. But I'm telling you, your school should be different because you're there. The key to living the mission is not changing your environment. The key to living the mission is being faithful within whatever environment you find yourself in and live as God has called you to live. So what Jeremiah is saying is this. Bloom where you are planted. When life gives you lemon, make lemonade. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and let's give God what belongs to God. We need to stop cursing the darkness and start spreading delight. Is that enough cliches for you? That's what he's saying. The point is this. It's not about changing our environment. It's about living the mission of Jesus in whatever environment we find ourselves in. Now, I also have a caution for you. This one's been brewing in me for quite some time. And I'm not going to reference any political leaders because I don't think that's right to do. But I want to say something to us as believers this morning. Just because a political leader champions a practice we believe in or a belief that we hold dear doesn't make them a good person. Let me give you an example. In the New Testament times, in Israel's history, Herod was loved by the Jews. He wasn't a Jew. He wasn't a Jew. But he behaved as if he was a Jew. And so these were the things that history tells us he did. When they had processions, he marched in their processions as one of them. When they had celebrations of faith, he went to their celebrations of faith. When there was time to speak, he knew exactly what they wanted to hear and he did the research and he said the exact words they wanted to hear. Does that sound familiar to you at all? He used their terminologies, their language. He even built them a temple. I mean, how good is that? They loved him. But it didn't change the fact that he was a horrible human being and was only doing what he did to gain their approval and their support so things would be peaceful under his rule. Just because a political leader champions a practice or belief that we hold dear doesn't make them a good person or a right person or worthy of our support. The only person, the only person that we can find hope in is Jesus Christ. So live for him with all of your heart. Focus on helping people come to know him. By living the mission, regardless of your circumstances, where you find yourself, regardless of culture and where government goes and what decisions they make and what legislations they pass, live the mission in the midst of all of it. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. Folks, Jesus never promised that living the mission was going to be easy.
In fact, I suspect that's why the box is empty. We let go of the hard part and we took all the easy, fun stuff. Making disciples is not easy. Living for Jesus is not easy. Building the kingdom is not easy. Jesus said this, guys, they hate me. (laughs) Hate's a strong word. My friend says it only should be reserved for cancer, smoking, and marijuana. Hate. Jesus said, they hate me. They hate me. And guess what? Because of me, they're also going to hate you. They're going to hate you. It's never promised that living the mission was going to be easy. The easy stuff is just focusing on the box and the instruction manual and not worrying about the hard stuff, the vital parts. That's the easy stuff. They don't hate you for that. Folks, these are tough times. And they're going to get worse. And our hope is in Jesus, not people, not systems, not practices, not government. And if we don't understand the mission, we're likely going to find ourselves focused and responding to areas and things that consume our time and consume our energy and distract us from the one vital thing that we are put here to do. Live the mission. If we're going to live the mission, we must first understand the mission. And I believe God has given us an insight in Jeremiah 29 of what he expects when his people, for whatever reason, find themselves in hostile, pagan, immoral, unspiritual environments. Dig in, boys. There's a work to be done while you're here. Let's stand together this morning. The worship team is going to lead us. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come. If you're here this morning and there's a need in your life and you'd like to have someone pray with you, then I want to be able to give you the opportunity. But if that's not your intention this morning, I just encourage you that as Tyler and the team leads us to reflect on. Because you have to answer for you how you are going to respond in the midst of the reality. The reality is the reality, but what you do with it, that's the difference maker. Are you going to live the mission and all that that means? I just pray that the Holy Spirit would would help you process that this morning. If you need prayer, would you please come? Prayer team, would would you join me here at the front?